church leaders still were polygamists, even though publicly they were not. The story of the Mormon church is fringe radical movement turning more and more palatable to the point where they eventually become a part of the Christian right. Totally. There was this conflict. Polygamy is no longer required. But where that really comes from is the LDS church trying to appease the federal government. You see this switch from we are fighting the federal government to, hey, we're now wanting to join the federal government. They started to excommunicate their own members for living polygamy. That's kind of messed up if you think about it. These people got excommunicated for living the same doctrine that the leadership taught them they had to live to get to the celestial kingdom. Oh, the Lord was constantly changing his mind. That's just proof that we have modern day revelation. And you can feel proud of that when you belong to that community. I have not gotten anything close to that feeling of belonging with 25,000 other people singing, if you could hide a cola. If you I mean, could hide to cola. I mean, potent stuff. I think it's honestly one of the reasons I love living in New York City is it reminds me of growing up in a house with 44 siblings. <laughs> How do you disentangle this ball of Yeah. Dog. I'm going to share something I don't think I've shared yet, what I call a story clash within fundamentalism and why we knew we were right and why the LDS church was now wrong. Known as the have you heard anything about this? No, no. It is the hallmark of why we exist. I did not know about this. This is really juicy stuff. As a fundamentalist Mormon, having five parents and 44 brothers and sisters was the norm for Calvin Wayman. Today I'll be spending a day with Calvin, an ex-cult member. Calvin's on his show. The thing I love about the show is just even in the name, culture, emphasis on the word cult. I have friends who grew up in like real cults. We had somebody on the show who has 44 siblings and four moms because he grew up in a polygamous compound. When I look at that, I'm like, okay, that's a cult. And it's not just going to be heavy all the time. So his dad was <laughs> Nick Cannon. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Nick Cannon was his dad? Is that is that what you're saying right there? <laughs> you had more siblings than there were presidents for a while. Holy shit. <laughs> you're, you're right. We're going to have a bunch of guests on the show. I'm into creativity, comedy, entertainment. I want this podcast to be the creative expression for my story and for my perspectives on life. Oh my God. 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 Oh my God. Yo, before getting into this episode, I have a couple things to say. First of all, Thank you guys so much for listening. Last episode, the one with Amanda Ray Grant, where we did cult comparisons of each other's cults, it went bananas. And I've never had a video do that before. It's kind of fun. Um, actually just qualified for the two partner program, which I'm super pumped about. So thank you so much for supporting, watching. It means the world to me. It's one step closer to me creating this crazy dream of being a full-time content creator. That's one thing. Second thing, I apologize in advance for the horrible video quality. This is the first time I did a Zoom call as a podcast interview, and I did my best, and I'm learning how to edit and trying to find somebody else to help me learn how to edit because this is taking too long. But anyway, thanks for supporting, and thank you for not beating me up in the comments on the video quality. But I hope you like the content. Let's get into it. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. I'm glad we finally made it happen. It's been a busy few weeks. What's that been like? Because uh, you're at this stage in your career that, I mean, I hope I get to, but of course they say, care for what you wish for. Are you at this place where they're like, it's a lot of work, but it's fulfilling? Or is it like, fuck, I need to slow down or find different things? Because you've been busy, just from what yeah, I see on the it, outside looking in. It's a double-edged sword. It's on one hand, the success of it all is this amazing dream like oh I, I get to make all this great work i get to work with cool people uh, you know i was in switzerland shooting shooting a, a video but there's at this level of things for me there's a level of responsibility and stress that mm -hmm. just kind of doesn't go away like when you're responsible for mm -hmm. 15 people's payroll every month yeah. and you're thinking about a million different things from 401ks to uh, to something breaks in the studio you know like it all comes back to you and that i didn't realize how you can't escape that if you own something you cannot mm -hmm. escape having yep. to think about it yeah but there's also a ton of upside to it and so it's like you get this upside of freedom and autonomy mm -hmm. and then you also get this load of kind of responsibility and stress that comes with it and then for me as well because I didn't just like build a product that we can like make in a factory. The exactly. product is like me presenting and stuff. Mm. I'm still 
minute to minute planned. My my life is planned. Like I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing today until I saw my yep. calendar that someone planned yep. for me weeks ago. And yep. there's a certain feeling, ironically, of like, oh, I'm suddenly a cog in my own machine. Exactly. You That's know, why I just, ask. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to think. So I mean, we can keep all this in. I, I do cold starts on all my podcasts anyway. Like if you had to give a piece of advice to your, like, so I'm, let's call myself cause you're so fucking far ahead, but five years previous, like, is there any tips that you should, you would give or you would do differently um, on my way? Cause I, I'm, I can see myself doing the same thing. Yeah. Not really. That's, that's what's yeah. Tricky. It's like the, the, the path that I chose and the path that you're on, the path that anyone's on who's trying to build something that doesn't exist and to work for yourself, to own something, you are on a path of a lot of voluntary stress and responsibility that you just don't have if you work for somebody else. If you work for somebody else, you've offloaded that to them and you show up to work, you do your work, you leave and and yet you miss out on some of the upside, but yeah. obviously there's financial upside, but then there's also just freedom and autonomy and being able to steer something and own something. So it, it kind of is, it comes with it. There's no way around it. I don't think mm-hmm. maybe there is for me, there was no way around it and I'm okay with it. It's a trade-off I'm very okay with. Yep. And I'm the time I'm, I make sure that I don't just focus on that and that I'm grateful for the, yeah. the successes that have come that allow me, you know, I went for a walk today uh, just in the middle of the day. And like, I was able to just like have this moment of like, oh, I actually don't need to do that thing right now. And I know that everyone mm-hmm. says I need to, but I ultimately decide that I don't need to do that, you know, yeah. and, and that kind of freedom is a, for me specifically, my type of personality, very, very, I kind of need it. I wasn't, I wasn't a very mm. good employee. Same. Yeah. Quit my day job, cold Turkey. In fact, that's what led me on this whole journey that made me come out of fundamentalist Mormonism, which might be a good segue. The one thing to wrap up that thought, I'm curious, like what that feels like the inescapableness of becoming your own, the cog in your own machine. If you can accept that you're going to have that anyway, what it makes me feel as a new kid on the block upcoming just makes me want to be extra thoughtful that I'm actually building something that's fucking mine and not doing something because I'm going to be in it. Right. So you're going to be, you better do something that is actually meaningful. Like that's, that's like the extra ring that comes to me as you're saying that it's like better be something that that's meaningful because you're, you're going to be working your face off either way. So if it's something you don't like, I I think that's right. And that's what gets it. That for me, the, the work, the, the specific genre and flavor of the work, for, which for me is explainer journalism and mm-hmm. video and animation and music and all of these creative things that, I mean, that solves all the problems at the end of the day. Like that makes all of the stress completely worth the trade-off because I get to exercise this extreme amount of creative autonomy mm-hmm. to make work for a large audience and I have a team of people who get to join me in that vision. And that's like, again, I think it comes down to a personality thing. Like all of the risk tolerance and all of the stress becomes very okay when I realize how much I get to do that. And I get to, and, and as long as you appreciate it, as long as you are continuously cultivating a sense of appreciation, then it, it takes away all of the, or at least, at least it, it makes that trade off very unambiguously worth it for me. Well, um, I wasn't expecting to kind of have this beginning conversation, but it's one of the things I like about the style of my show. I'm going to keep all this in if you're cool with it, at least totally, the majority. Yeah. Let's go into the Mormon stuff. Did you actually grow up around the the Mecca? I don't know if I if I caught that. I, so I grew up in Southern Oregon, not the Mecca. I, was, I grew up in actually a very like hippie liberal town, but it was a liberal town that was surrounded by like kind of these libertarian counties in Southern Oregon that, so the church there was a particularly extreme kind of evangelical version, not, not extreme, like basically just like the very literal Orthodox approach to LDS doctrine, at least the, the, the mainstream LDS Mm -hmm. doctrine. So yeah, I, I grew up in this weird one foot in both worlds where I'd go to church on Sunday and it was, very, very intense, hardcore, you know, preppers. And then I would go to school with all these like bleeding heart liberals. And uh-huh. that dichotomy is incredibly influential. Dude. 
It on. totally was. That makes so much sense of you because I didn't get that until my 20s. You've done a lot of digging into your own history. And I guess I should say our own history, even though I grew up fundamentalist Mormon and you grew up regular Mormon. And so there's a lot of different, I have so many notes, like there's a lot of different angles and, and threads we could take. But one of the things I want to go down is this, uh, my what I call the crack. So my moment where I realized that where I was in two different worlds is I was homeschooled my entire life in the Mecca in Utah. And something you talked about in your video you did two years ago was this monopoly on truth yeah, that kept very well within fundamentalist Mormonism. And so I ended up becoming the first and only child of my dad's 45 kids uh, to go to college. And that was when I was around different ideas for the first time. And it was actually a philosophy class, that fateful philosophy class. The whole semester was themed off of the Matrix, the movie. I had never heard of it. It was like so cool. And then it was based on Plato's The My professor told us this old story called Plato's Allegory of the Cave and made me realize for the first time, whoa, I could actually be in something that's that's like not what I think it is. And so this ties back to your your own journey. Did you ever have one of those moments where it was like, whoa, because you, yes, you were in both camps. You were one leg in, one leg out, but you also went on a mission. Yeah. You were doing all the, the Mormon things. Like, even if it wasn't leaving, like, we'll get to that and what got you to actually leave. But like, was there something that you're like, huh, like even early in the journey, if you look back in 2020 hindsight? Yeah. You know, I'm someone who, when I do something, I tend to go 100% into it and I tend to make it work if I've made a decision. And that 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 is my personality in, in all things. And it's a, it's a personality trait that is very useful in, in certain things. In the case of the church, my mission was kind of the opposite of that experience where I was kind of this like, free-spirited, free-thinking, creative person. And when I kind of realized that I had to go on a mission, I think that's when I committed the other way. I committed to say, I'm going to go all in on this. I'm going to make this work. And so from the time I was 19, through those two years in Mexico, struggling because a mission is hard, but then also struggling in my mind, I was effectively reshaping my mind to say, I believe in this thing. I'm going to make it work. I was praying. I was having the spiritual experiences. I was studying the doctrine. I was memorizing the scriptures. I was doing all of the things to go 100% and became very good at it. And it became a very big part of my identity. When I came back from my mission to BYU, same thing. I was like, I'm going to be the type of person who is 100%. So I was a temple worker. Mm -hmm. I would go to the temple on Saturday mornings at 6 a.m. and work the veil for six hours with a bunch of like retired old people in Provo, Utah. And I was like this young, you know, 21-year-old who was just righteous and doing it all right. That, what I've just described, I think is the, is the, the opposite, is the, is the moment of going deeper and deeper. The mission was that moment. It was, I think if I had to chalk up a moment where it started to flip and go the other way, it was when I moved to DC. It's when I had a kid which I moved to DC and had a kid at the same time. That's a I'm glad you brought that up. I want to make a quick comment on that because I noticed that in your journey. Like a lot of people having a child is like a major moment of like, what am I going to teach my child? Yeah. And, I, and you asked that same thing. Like, what do I want to teach him? But the thing that I found fascinating is I'm fascinated by cults, but even deeper than that, I'm fascinated in storytelling and, and narratives and incentives and what keeps people inside of something. And when I talk to a lot of people that are in something that might be called a high control environment, it's actually, I've seen them do the opposite of you, where they were very open and liberal and asking questions. And as soon as they're having a kid, they're like, well, I had a pretty good upbringing and I want them to be around this social circle that is so tight. And my goodness. Mormonism, like one thing it has so well is like that family dynamic and yeah. social structure down pat. So yeah. there's a disconnect here for me with you on that, yeah. because it was actually having a kid where you were like, do I want them to be a part of this? And ultimately your decisions? No. Well, you walk. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I think it's because, again, I had had that commitment feeling already. I had really 
decided that I this was it for me. And I and I really fused my identity to this thing with great effort and great struggle. It was it was a lot of tension for my disposition to fit into the mold of a good Mormon who is often very obedient, who is often very deferential to authority, who inquires, but not inquires, you know, not to the end. They inquire enough to get to feel like they inquired, but they will not push further than they're willing to, and that are required to have mystical experiences in order to firm their faith up. Those, those are all things that like are not me, but I forced myself into that. You forced After yourself school. to have mystical experiences that you didn't really have. Yeah. Or if yep. I did, you know, like they were so incredibly forced out of me in the sense that like I didn't have a choice. I'm sitting there in Tijuana, Mexico, six months into my mission, feeling so incredibly like, why am I here? The answer is, oh, because the restoration exists and you are a, a teacher of the restoration. That, that That is what Jesus wants you to do. And there is a way you can know it. You can know it if you just get on your knees long enough and pray and have enough of a sincere heart. And I did that. I would spend literally hours. I would be on my knees for hours on these tile floors in Mexico being like, I have the purest intention of anyone on this planet. Like, please. Yeah, I had moments where I finally, where it finally broke for me. And I let myself sort of melt into a mental experience of like, this must be it. I'm feeling something. This must be the burning of the bosom. And I would read into that. And then I would write poetry about it. And I would I would like make, I would fuse that as my, as my kind of trophy of faith, which I think a lot, I think that the, the way that the doctrine works provokes a lot of people to do that, to use yep. uh, special experiences as their, the things they hold on to and the, their testimony is built around these mystical experiences that they can't deny they had, which is not surprising. I mean, Joseph Smith set the tone uh -huh. by saying like, I saw God in a forest, uh -huh. therefore everyone needs to have their own little sacred grove experience. Uh -huh. So having that intense struggle to fuse my identity to this thing, I think I knew somewhere in my body that this wasn't working. I knew it wasn't working somewhere in my body. I knew my brain had intellectualized it and made it work. Somewhere in my body, it wasn't working. There was a deep tension. When my child was born, when I was looking at my child, I think it erupted all of that tension to the surface where I said, I can't bullshit with myself anymore. I can't play this double game. Like, this is my kid. This is my responsibility. I have to actually evaluate if this is real. And that's when it started to break for me. I did, I did gave it one last chance. I took one year of intense uh -huh. study, intense church going, intense Book of Mormon reading, intense praying. And by the end of it, it all just was like, it, it was so crystal clear by the end of that, that I was effectively painting myself out of my belief system over the course of that year. I relate to your journey so much. It's so fascinating because we're, we lived different, completely different lives. And yet there's similarities. One of my major choice points when I left was, am I going to live my entire life based on what my dad says, the church leaders say, the book says, in other words, the external world, or am I going to listen to what I'm feeling in my body? in my gut, in my intuition for the first time. And that is what you're reminding me of right now. You're like, you're familiar with the, did your family grow up talking about the shelf? Yeah, the shelf, the, the shelf <laughs> analogy was a big one. Just put it on the shelf, yeah. What a great, I mean, in retrospect, as a storyteller, I'm, I love, like some of these things are fascinating. What a great psychological, uh, how would you describe it actually? I'd love to hear what the, what the shelf is and then we'll tie back to mind-breaking. I think anyone who, it's hard to it's hard to describe something like this without sounding insensitive to those who believe in these stories and to discount them and I and I don't want to do that. Yeah. But I having gone through what I've gone through it with regard to belief systems, I really think that we all in order to ha to to hold a very firm belief that then pertains to everyone around you. I believe that you're actually a child of God and that you need to be baptized and confirmed and have the endowment and sealing to go back to the celestial kingdom. If you can believe that about every human on this planet, you have to have mental models or constructs that yes. allow you to reconcile all of the many things that are wrong with that assertion. Totally. And the is, is a very perfect catch-all for, hey, if you are a free-thinking person, and you have problems with the logic of these assertions, don't worry, 
your ways are not God's ways. Everyone's ways are different. God has a plan. It will be worked out. Put this in a different space, put it into a compartment, put it on the shelf, and it will be taken care of in due time. And if nothing else, it'll all be taken care of in the second coming. And that's the the, the beautiful, actually, if you're a believer, you get to believe that every person around you, even if they don't hear the gospel here, in the next life, they have, they'll have the opportunity. And that's what yes. temple work is. And we've, we've checked all the boxes so that you you can actually believe in this thing that is very un, unlikely and improbable and fairly outlandish because we have mental models that help you reconcile and the shelf putting it on the shelf when you when you can't really wrestle with it is a fantastic model metaphor whatever it is to just say don't think about this too much please just stick with what you've been told and find a way to believe what you've been told and that's, you know, that's one of my big critiques with the with the the messaging of the church. I think there's this major focus on inquiry. I used to say this yeah. all the time to to people. You don't have to believe me that when I was a missionary, you don't have to believe me that this is true. You can ask the Lord. If you got down and prayed right now, he'll tell you. And like to be able to say that so boldly to somebody, it's such a trump card. It's like, oh, they're telling me that I can know this for myself. And yet the the pretext to all of that is but if you get the wrong answer or you don't get an answer, you didn't ask the right question or you didn't ask hard enough or you're not sincere enough or you're not pure of heart or you're not worthy or whatever the thing is, there's some excuse. Keep asking until you get the right answer. So, yes. so there's a sense of freedom of autonomy, but but it, it actually is constrained by these very clear boundaries of what you should actually, what the results should be. And that kind of, to me, deletes the whole premise of there being real inquiry and real mm -hmm. autonomy within the, the church framework. Just to tie that, the, the, the point I wanted to just point out um, was that you didn't leave by necessarily looking at all the external things as why it's wrong. It was more of a, an inside out. Like, I don't want to bullshit myself. I don't want to, like using your words, like, I don't want to, this doesn't feel right to me it for myself. And that's what ultimately made you decide. It wasn't necessarily wanting anybody else to do something different or the structure itself to go away or anything at that point. It was just like, this is what I'm feeling for myself. Yeah. If I'm being sincere to myself, it was very personal in that way. And it was very based on the existential view that the church lays out, which is a, a doctrine of that explains where we came from, why we're here and where we're going. That story, the plan of salvation, uh, the doctrine was always something that I held strong to. And so all of the problematic social positions of the church, prop aid and gay marriage and women in the priesthood and all of these things that were kind of trending at the time, driving a lot of people out of the church and still are driving a lot of people out of the church. To me, those bounced off me when I was a believer because I said, if this is true, if Joseph Smith saw God and Jesus Christ in a grove in upstate New York, then all of these other social issues that to me are problematic, I can deal with because there is a God in heaven who who made me like like these things all pale in comparison. So I, I was really deeply fettered to the doctrine as a real assertion of eternal truth. Mm -hmm. And when that when that started to crumble everything crumbled for me and it was very yep. inside out it was very personal it yeah. wasn't about the organization it wasn't about the social issues it wasn't about the history and blacks and the priesthood and polygamy it wasn't about any of that it yeah. was about the assertions <laughs> that were made by the church and me coming to terms with the fact that they are not actually eternally true they are a story that a a, a very clever storyteller invented in yes in, and i didn't come to those terms until recently Yep. The kind of storyteller and my explanation of Joseph Smith until I made this recent video, which really helped me understand Joseph Smith by applying my journalistic inquiry to him as a human, as a person, as a storyteller, as a figure, as a leader. And that's when I really started to piece together an explanation. But when I left, it was really, I just know this isn't true. And I'm not really sure how it, the Book of Mormon was made, but I, I just know this isn't true. So you didn't actually... It, there was never like a deep dive into like polygamy, let's say, and be like, was that one of those shelf things or was that ever like a serious, ooh? I knew all that stuff. I had done all, I, I was very much the, you know, there's a whole class of, of intellectual 
LDS scholars and apologists, apologists. you know, fair, fair LDS, that kind of way of thinking, hyper intellectual, you know, to, to a free spirited, like thinker, it, it really takes the edge off of a lot of that stuff. Those organizations go to great lengths to build up a body of basically defense for all of it. And I bought into all of it. I was very deep in that and had mental models that were much more sophisticated than the shelf. For me, uh -huh. I was like, I, for every one of those, I could debate you and I could, I could defend polygamy and blacks in the priesthood perfectly. And they, with these intellectually sound arguments that sounded so wonderful and that it would make me feel secure in my faith. Yeah, so that that stuff was all there, but I had the, the you know I had all the antidotes ready to go over over the years. I collected those because again, I I was like, if this is real, then everything can be explained and everything is justified. Which brand of explanation did you do for polygamy? I wonder. And before you answer that, I think for anybody listening, where your and my church were once the same, and where the split off happened, because I yeah. get a lot of comments on different YouTube videos, especially the Anthony Padilla episode that he did on me. It, so many people, existing members are like, just so you know, we're not the same thing. We come from the same thing. In fact, fundamentalist Mormons and regular Mormons, you can th those were the same thing. In the history, Joseph Smith, of course, was a polygamist. That's well documented. Brigham Young, dozens and dozens and dozens of wives as well. And then, and this is my understanding, so I'd love any critique on from you, Johnny, having uh, done some, just finished a major deep dive on Joseph Smith in the history. But my understanding and my digging is there were major challenges, especially as the state of Deseret was trying to, the Utah Territory was trying to gain statehood. And there was this uh, conflict with the church and the federal government. And somewhere along the way, there's this revelation that says polygamy is no longer required. But where that really comes from is the LDS church trying to appease the federal government. My ancestors, fundamentalist Mormons, they were like, but this is how we're getting to the celestial kingdom. Yeah. Like, that's what we've been taught by Joseph Smith. Like, they remembered Joseph Smith or Brigham Young, their leaders telling them. And for a while, within the LDS church, church leaders still were polygamists, even though publicly they were not. Yeah, They were living privately polygamous. And then the federal government found out about that part too. And, and so they're like, okay, we really need to get rid of it. And ultimately what it comes down to is they actually stop living polygamy, but then they end up actually saying like, we're so done. In fact, if you're living polygamy or anything else, then you're going to be excommunicated because members within the church were creating what's the word tension or beef or anything from what the the LDS church and the government and so almost as a as a statement they're like no we don't live polygamy anymore here's the document the manifesto that says yeah. we're not and we're actually excommunicating members and they that's what they started to do so they started to excommunicate their own members for living polygamy now for yeah. me coming from this i look back I'm like that's kind of messed up if you think about it, because what you're telling me then is these people got excommunicated for living the same doctrine that the that the leadership taught them they had to live to get to the celestial kingdom. Yeah. And it and it changed. But anyway, that's where fundamentalism actually starts is through a, 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 a pretty big a divide, exodus, a split, a, yeah. a split between the doctrine. But it really kicked off when a lot of fundamentalist Mormons that were in the church got kicked out. And they're like, well, we're the ones that have the true church. It's actually the church that apostatized. Yes. We can go and there. I but I think there are several, you know, community of Christ. There, there are several different um, fundamentalist groups based yep. on um, different succession. I think community of Christ is actually... A split off from Joseph Smith the third to so Joseph Smith's son mm -hmm. Emma after Joseph Smith's death split off they stayed east yep and there that was more of a succession uh split over who was going to take over the the church after yeah Joseph died but in terms of the you know the, the next part of the series that I'm working on is effectively that history Joseph dies they all move west and they start this new community this new economy in the zion West, in mexico oh and this and they try to make it a, a state they 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 realize the, mm -hmm. the u.s is they they help the u.s fight the u.s mexican war 
they defeat Mexico. They take over basically that giant swath of the Southwest. And the, and the Mormons are like, hey, we've been out here building industrial economies. Like the reason why Brigham Young sent people south to Arizona and north to Idaho wasn't because he wanted them to like spread Mormonism. It was because he wanted them to build an economic corridor in the Mountain West that would allow them to be self-sufficient economically and and have cotton and steel and all of these because it was you couldn't grow a lot of stuff in Utah like you couldn't mm-hmm. grow a lot of stuff in Salt Lake City like in the high desert so they they had this giant economic corridor so by the time the United States is moving west they're like hey we've already been colonizing this land turn making it productive let us make a state and the the state of Deseret of course was this massive state that was like all of California right. all of Nevada all of right. Arizona and Utah and you see this switch from we are fighting the federal government and we are embattled with the federal government and we are a political threat to the federal government to, hey, we're now wanting to join the federal government because we see that the U.S. is expanding. And polygamy was a massive, as you said, issue in that to the point where they had to make that shift. And and to me, the the, the story of the Mormon church is the story of fringe radical movement turning more and more and more palatable to the point where they eventually become a part of the Christian right. And they become, totally, you know, Mitt Romney buttoned yeah. up just like all American, you know, like, like that, that's to me the most fascinating just from an American studies perspective. But anyway, all totally. of this is to say, going back to, if I were to put on my hat as a believer in my heyday and you just said what you just said about like, well, why are, why are they getting punished for practicing uh, what they were taught by the, by the prophet? And the answer that is such a useful answer for the, again, another mental construct that's very useful for rectifying and reconciling a lot of the stuff is, well, it's modern day revelation. The Lord Mm -hmm. is guiding his people in the same way that he guided, you know, Moses across the sea with all of the people who were, who were leaving like bit by bit. And, and, and Mm -hmm. he, and having that constant, you know, Joseph Smith developed a culture of the Lord told me this today. And so we need to do this. The Lord told me that there that Zion is actually on the outskirts at the border with the Lamanites. So Oliver Cowdery, you need to go find where Zion is. Oh, the Lord told me it's actually not in Independence, Missouri. It's up in Nauvoo. Like the Lord was constantly changing his mind via his prophets. Mm-hmm. And the, the justification was it's because it's what was good for the saints at that point. And yes. so both blacks and the priesthood, polygamy can both be pawned off as well, the Lord knew that the saints weren't ready for this, or the Lord thought that we needed this at this point, and then he changed his mind because the circumstance changed. And you can feel proud of that as a believer. You can say, oh, that's just proof that we have modern-day revelation. That's just proof mm-hmm. that like the Lord is guiding the prophet today just like prophets of old. And it's yeah. actually a strength that we are a living, breathing church and that we're not stuck in old doctrines. Look at us, you know, so you could flip almost everything into something like that. To your point that you can flip almost anything into something like that. I'm going to, just for our, my listeners, I'm going to share something I don't think I've shared yet, how that type of thing happened within fundamentalism and why we knew we were right and why the LDS church was now wrong. I'll use my own explanation for it. Joseph Smith I noticed something in you, you described it as a story and the storytelling that he like he was fantastic at storytelling. And one thing that I've noticed is in the history, there's this point where what I call a story clash and a major story clash is between like Mormons and then regular Christians. One thing that I just noticed is fascinating is in that story clash, there's usually another story that has an authority figure that both sides believe in, but then point to the direction you want it to go. Yep. So we all know the Joseph Smith story about 14 years old in the in the grove. But based on my research, I actually would love to ask you, that didn't like that wasn't commonly talked about when he was 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, way later, right? When the clash actually happened. And so clash of who's the prophet, like he like who, who, what's the true church? And that ends up coming into like, well, there's this story now. And who's the major authority figure that both sides can believe in in there? Jesus, God. And he said, do this. So now he's putting authority on them. That same type of thing happened 
when the split off happened with the fundamentalists in the LDS church. LDS church has their own explanation. People can say, yeah, modern day revelation, but there's this whole invented story known as the 1886 episode. Have you heard anything about this? No, no. It is the hallmark of why we exist. My church does plays on it. We have books about it. Wow. It's everything of what validates what we did. And so what ended up happening is during the split off, one of the church leaders of the time, John Taylor, you know that name. Oh, yeah. So John Taylor was praying, what should I do? What should I do? He was visited in the night by Jesus and then joseph smith whoa joseph smith came back and then jesus left and so and there's this whole story i can give you some docs on it after if you want but there's this whole story known as the that happened after that called the eight hour meeting and the eight hour meeting is john taylor came out of the room his his face was white his countenance was bright because he had just spoke all night long at first with jesus and then joseph smith and he ended up writing this revelation as to what we should do with the polygamy issue. And we have, I mean, I could fucking, I'm going to quote it because I did a play on this where, where John Taylor rose from the ground and said, sign that document. Never. I would rather my arm be torn off than sign the manifesto is the document that they're talking uh, about. Uh, sanction it. Never. I'd rather my tongue be torn from the roots because Joseph Smith and, and Jesus basically told them that, no, this is a divine principle. It's a celestial principle. This is something that cannot change because God does not change. Wow. Yes, there's revelation, but God does not change. It's a celestial law. I did not know about this. This is really juicy stuff. It is so fascinating. Now, from Calvin and Johnny now, from a storytelling, people that like storytelling, I see the same pattern. Who like? So there was a story clash between fundamentalists and LDS yeah. about which direction to go, polygamy or not polygamy. But notice the story that like bubbled up, this story that put like who's somebody that, that both sides can agree on? Jesus and Joseph Smith. Yeah. yeah. And so Joseph Smith, the authority figure, gives us, the fundamentalists, the, the permission or this new yeah. narrative as to continue down this path. And then they're emboldened. And so I'm fascinated by that stuff. You see this happen all in human history. There's like this yeah. a narrative and then another narrative. And then they clash, and then um, these this new mutation, I guess, happens. Yeah, I mean, it's the story of geopolitics. I mean, what's happening in Ukraine right now is effectively a story clash mm. of Vladimir Putin believing in a certain authority to yes. that the Russian Empire owns Ukraine and that they are yes. entitled, and that Ukraine is actually a fake country. So it's like mm -hmm. to be able to boil down the complicated, chaotic world that exists to these very straightforward clear narratives i mean that that is how human society and cooperation works and when you have when you have something like joseph smith he basically takes a fresh narrative and builds it and he and he gets followers around that so no one can challenge him because he is the the, the source of that narrative but the moment yes. he dies it then becomes a competition of stories it becomes a competition of authority and and they all point back to the to the original martyr and this happens you know islam is a great example of this too not just with muhammad but also um with then the succession of of those uh abu Bakr and and all, all of mm -hmm. those who then eventually became the, the 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 sort of godfathers of of sunni and shia muslims they have their specific story that Says, yes, you know, we have the right. So it's like this is as human as it can get. It, dude, the best story wins. Um, in fact, one thing I'm so glad we actually kind of got to this. We could do a whole thing on this one, like the, the just using Mormonism as like not even the point, but just as like the the tool that we like explore Whoa, storytelling. Sorry. You just mentioned a competition of stories, and the thing that came to mind to me there is specific to Mormonism. The best story wins yeah. in in general, like. And when you, there's a lot of people when they have no connection to Mormonism, they're like, how in the heck is this as powerful as it is? Why is it so big? Man, first of all, all the right elements uh, based on what you talked about in the Joseph Smith story, like the, 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 the purpose of building up Zion, all that's good. Like Joseph Smith becoming a martyr helped the story in such a major way, but that, that, that's not even the main point. The main point to me on the competition is how much competition 
was there out in Utah when it came to story. And so my, I mean, this is just one of my views. Like I think the fact that they lived in somewhat isolation out in Utah is one of the reasons it is still as big as it is. Because if you look at similar Mormon teachings like the church that you mentioned, Community of Christ, and the the one that Emma stayed in, if you look at their members compared to the LDS church, yeah. yeah, not even close. And they have very similar things. And my explanation of that is because they had much greater story competition. Yeah. And I would say the other ingredient that kind of amplifies the, the stain power of these stories is struggle and and uh, victimhood. So, yeah. What do you mean by that? Say more. You know, come, come, ye saints is a hymn we sing. Come, about. come, ye saints. I mean, it's a beautiful song. Na, 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 na. I've, I've bawled yeah. my eyes out to that song more than once uh, in general conference when you and 25,000 other believers are singing about these committed people, our ancestors, pushing handcarts across the freezing plains because they were yeah. kicked out. Be, for yeah. their beliefs yeah and i even feel this i feel the spirit right now talking i'm about getting it. goosebumps i am literally yeah. getting goosebumps right now because yes. like we sing the same thing in fact that oh. same story continues on in fundamentalism we feel like that we ended up having to oh you, yeah i'm sure it's doubled down I and mean, yeah. the more ortho it's almost like the more struggle there was the more the more orthodoxy is produced yep. because of it and this is this yes. is judaism like you think yes. of those who fled eastern europe in yes. the 30s became the ultra orthodox communities in Brooklyn New York like you you the more struggle victimhood and persecution you have blended with this you know story competition and exodus throw an exodus in there and boy you've got like you have a stain power of a community and when you belong to that community it's actually an amazing feeling like it, it actually they're actually for all of the control and the strictures associated with it there is a sense of oneness that you just simply do not get at least in the western modern society that i'm familiar with i have not gotten anything close to that feeling of belonging that i felt that i would feel in the conference center with twenty five thousand other people singing come come ye saints or a million other songs if you could hide a collab all these songs about wild crazy things that Johnny, you're going to start triggering me singing other songs like any of these. Songs. <laughs> if you I mean, could hide to cola, I mean, it's potent stuff. I mean, and, and then you have the other thing. The other ingredient of this is a self-selected group of the most devoted people. The ones who were willing to go across the plains were like Gosh, the ones who were the most hardcore, who were the most industrious, right. who were the most like willing. And so you got all of them to gather in the high desert where you can't grow anything because it's a high desert next to a salty lake. And you're like, build a community off of this story, story competition, you know, succession movements, split off, and you get a very unique culture. And I'm and I'm moving into the phase where I'm less and less triggered by the doctrine and whatever. Yeah. And I'm more and more fascinated. Fascinated. I was just going to say that. Yep. This story that I did on Joseph Smith helped that transition to the point where I was actually going to be in Utah in July on Pioneer Day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I want to participate. I want totally. to run. The, and I ran the Pioneer Day half marathon through Emigration Canyon where Heck the Saints yeah. came in. Through this the is the place. Like, yeah, this is the this is the place, the half marathon. I, I did that as a part as a way of being like, I'm just fascinated that I was ever even a part of this thing. Of course, I have all the baggage and all the resentment, but like it's a pretty wild it's a pretty wild historical story you know in addition to all of the this is the dogmatic stories what you're getting in now is the complexity and the nuance of this whole thing because it would be so easy and and humans we have this black and white knee-jerk reaction to be like something like this exists only because of manipulation and control and all that stuff but one thing that we're just touching on right now is there's so much good mixed in and that's what I think makes it complicated. Like, how do you sort through it all? Like, and be like that. And like, what do you do now? Cause as you just mentioned, and this is some, I think it's honestly one of the reasons I love living in New York city is it's the closest thing I have found 
like it reminds me of growing up in a house with 44 siblings. Like yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm I'm okay. It feels normal. I can walk down the street and there's a basketball court and my friends are like, come play basketball. And like, it reminds me of like leaving my apartment and going to the city reminds me of leaving my bedroom and uh, going into our big yard and there's siblings over here doing that. And yeah. like, but how do you, how have you personally, Johnny, like found the pieces that are good and keep them? And like, like how, how do you rationalize it now? Like I'm, I'm trying to see if I'm, can you even get clear on what I'm asking? Like yeah, there I mean, are I good exactly things. What you're asking. I know exactly what you're asking uh, because I, I know that challenge, which is how do you disentangle this ball of yarn yeah. where it, where it's two different colors of yarn and one is really damaging and, and really, really difficult and psychologically kind of gaslighting. And then one is really beautiful and wholesome and sweet and community and all of the things that humans want. And they're, and the, then the two yarns are totally tangled together and they're like in knots and you're just like, this is one thing. The answer is I don't. I don't actually have a clean reconciliation okay. other than, and I've had to come to peace with this kind of very clear dissonance. And, it, you know, this is a very different experience that I have than my wife has. Mm -hmm. My wife, who also grew up LDS, was wronged by the church in an order of magnitude worse than I was as a straight white as man a, in yep. church. I had it pretty freaking good. I, you know, right. like, it messed up my perception of how sex is supposed to work and like what what yep. uh, women's role is in this world. And they gave me a lot of shame and about sin and about a lot of things. Guilt. Um, and they told me a story that I don't think is real. For her as a woman, um, in in certain circumstances, it was very, very unambiguously just bad. And so for her, yeah. it was like, this is one thing bad and I want it out of my life and now I'm going to heal. For me, I have been on this journey of trying to look at the things that were good and the things that remain good, you know, invite those into my life. And I actually don't have a problem inviting those into my life in the sense that I do, you know, before I, I feel this impulse every night when we sit at the dinner table, we're all sitting around and I'm like, should we say a prayer? Like for heaven's sake, like it's like, mm -hmm. should we just say something? Like, isn't there something good about being like, Hey, I'm grateful we have this food, you know, like, like what, what are some of the things that, that we, that I don't have to reject. And I'm, in, I'm still in the process where I'm getting to the point where I can invite certain things in and, and not just reject the whole thing. I think yeah. the best part about it though, the best, the thing that I can say is like, I'm grateful for is that others who have left like you, though, I know that we were in diff different worlds to some degree, but like there is some deep familiarity that we can share. And then some of my closest friends from college, we've all left. We, when we get together, we can just riff forever on totally. the deepest, the deepest, like most inside of, of knowledge and understanding of this nuanced thing. And we'll, we'll quote, like we'll quote things, we'll say things. And it's just so like, no one knows you like somebody <laughs> who was a part of it. And that's a, that's <laughs> kind of a, a way to salvage some of that, like so true. after the fact, after you've left it. Yeah, there's a there's this comedy show uh, <laughs> that happens in Boise, Idaho. I've been a part of it because I, I dabble in stand up comedy. It's been one of my healing journeys of just being able to talk about things that, especially in fundamentalist Mormonism, like you could never criticize a prophet. Otherwise, you're like you're risking your soul, like yeah. being damned. And so it's so fun. But uh, my friend Crystal Moore puts this show on on the same weekend generally of a general conference uh, it's called the jack mormon comedy hour and it's just a night of so much laughter uh so much healing um it honestly feels like three years of therapy in a single night but it's a it's to your point a bunch of people that get it <laughs> like 200 x mormons like uh, come down on boise idaho and just I love it. connect and laugh and sing songs and like Crystal Moore's has a little bit more courage than I do. Comes out on stage wearing the the garments, the long underwear, and stuff like that on her outer clothes, and just it's just it's just so fun. It's a it's a reclaiming. It's it it's a reclaiming, and everyone does it in their own way. For a while, I was really uncomfortable with that because I was like, I don't want to be the bitter ex Mormon or 
this is sacred to a lot of people, so I shouldn't shouldn't joke about it or make light of it. I've now come to a place where I'm very comfortable reclaiming because I'm like, this is my story too. Like, yeah, other people believe in it, but this is my story. I put in the years. I put in the yeah. I, I put in the hours. You know, I, I I served. I volunteered for two years to market yeah. for this church around the world. Like, I earned this, and I'm going to reclaim it for myself. Yeah, because it never felt like my story. It felt like I was subservient to an authority, a priesthood authority, a whatever authority. And I now it's mine. This is my story. And so there is some real catharsis. And I feel that same yep. way about telling the story. When I tell mm -hmm. the story to, you know, a million people on the internet, I also get that sense of catharsis. It's not to stir the pot. It's not to jab at anybody. It's not to hurt anybody. It is purely my part it's my my way of processing which it sounds like it is for you as well you know yeah and it sounds like that you've you've crossed this bridge where before you might have even like held yourself back from discussing or a fear of like somebody's gonna somebody on the inside you're it's making fun of it or 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 it's uh making it look bad but it's like you've been able to be okay with it in the fact that it's yours like you lived it. It's it's not the same thing as like pointing at a group or whatever, like in a disrespectful way that you don't know anything about. Like it is like you you were in it. Like yeah. it's it's like pointing at yourself in a way. Like yes. so you 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 get to you get to talk about it. You get like you were in every aspect of your life from birth to all the rituals to being married in the temple, going on a mission for two years. Like if there's anybody that gets to talk about it, it's somebody that lived it and yeah. transitioned out. So it sounds like that you've crossed that bridge and that's made it okay. And that's, yes. that's how you can talk about it yes. now. And there, there are red lines for me still in the sense. What of, are some of those? I, I'm, I'm um, still trying to find mine. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, and I don't totally know. Like, it, I think there's a, there's a place where, and when I get into conversations with believers, depending on who it is, but like, I try to remain not making light of my, like, I try to at least demonstrate a sense of respect towards their belief in the same way that I would for anyone in their belief. Meaning just because I know all of the things and have feelings about them, it doesn't mean that I am now going to spew those as if in the same way that I really didn't like the element of the church that was, we have a mon monopoly on truth, on the fullness mm -hmm. of the truth at least, and we now know the story of everyone around us, or at least the, the what they need to do to return to to heaven i don't want to be the person who because i've transitioned i now know the story of them and that they're just being duped by this church even though the way right. i talk about it infers that that's how i think yeah. i don't want to be the person who is aggressive in that way so anytime totally. that i cross that line <laughs> of of just full-on kind of making fun of somebody for believing this i think that's probably one step too far for me right and it sounds like what you're doing then is get keeping it as close to you Right. It's like, well, this is my experience and this is the way I'm interpreting it. And this is what I've noticed with the storytelling. How do you balance that with when you are doing this very documentary journalistic style of digging into history and, and stating stuff? Like I've I watched some ward radio stuff on YouTube of them critiquing your stuff of that video and stuff like that and they have their own views and they they very much <laughs> they were they had a whole segment on you putting in the video like see see you guys in the comments fair mormon or whatever they uh, anyway they had a whole lot of things to say about that but like i mean when when something is both sides get to talk about it or it's a history that both sides share how do you choose how to share like it like it's you're going to share something historically based on what it looks like, but it's not your personal experience, but it's what yeah, you look really like. close to. It's something I'm really close to and I have thoughts on that. This was actually a really easy and natural thing for me because my job is to look at a story, a history story or a current event story and to take this like all encompassing explainer kind of point of view on it and try to understand it and then explain it to an audience. I was able to take that same, those same tools and apply that to this thing that's obviously much more charged and much more emotional and see it through that lens. So I read a lot of academic material, both from believing Mormons, but also from just, you know, American studies professors who aren't believers or just fascinated by the Mormon experience and approach it from that lens. Of course, it's not, you know, it's a 45 minute video. It, it, it went a little longer because 
I had thoughts on it and I did render my opinion, but I did that kind of in the same way that I, I explained, like I, that was me saying, Hey, I have thoughts on this. I lived it. I I'm entitled to some thoughts here, but the bulk of that video and the bulk of the series is going to be no different than my sort of journalistic viewpoint that I apply to everything. And so in that sense, it wasn't much different, which was, and you're not worried that somebody might take it different and somebody that you're not too worried. That's like, if somebody that's a believing member takes it differently on something like Joseph Smith being a polygamist and stuff like that. Cause I, I saw some apologists even say that, like, is that even like Johnny said this? And is that actually like, it's quoting somebody that doesn't really know, like, how do you know yeah, it's it, if anyone like it, every fact that I put in the video is absolutely backed up by very robust evidence. Okay. And there's a, there's very little speculative commentary other than my opinion about what I think happened here as someone who believed it and then rejected it. But the majority of the thing was me telling a, a historical story about Joseph Smith. And, and honestly, a lot of believers who are my friends reached out to me and were like, dang, this was actually less brutal than I thought it was going to be. I thought you were going to yep. like slam down. There's a lot of other, you know, underbelly that's actually more subject to speculation, uh -huh. stuff in Journal of Discourses, some uh -huh. other anecdotes that just really show some egregious stuff. It wasn't as robust and it wasn't as solid to the story. And I, so I didn't include So you left it out. It. Yeah. And yeah, I, I kept it very, very... Cool pretty mainstream everyone knows this with a little bit of digging it's not anti-mormon literature these are just basic historical facts i'm going to string them together into a story that helps people understand the lds church from a sort of dispassionate lens and that was my goal and i, th and I feel really proud about the end product heck yeah well thanks for indulging me there um indulging me just just helping me in my own journey going out telling more on the podcast and video and interviews and that sort of thing Totally. And and comedy and that sort of thing. Okay, let's start coming in for a landing since coming out. Something that Mormonism has that I feel is very intoxicating for humans is this level of certainty. Yeah. Would you agree that in a way you had to, when you left, it's kind of like accepting uncertainty in a way. Like Big time. the world is no longer this way. I'm just so curious about, like for me... I went through a little bit of a depressive episode because I'm not going to be a God potential. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like yeah. we, as like in the Mormon story, you can keep ascending. Like we know exactly why, where, what we were doing. We wanted to get a body and like, we're here to choose yeah. good over evil and keep on progressing. And if you keep on progressing, someday you get to be a God. That's what I was taught and raised. I had nothing else. Just the message of progress and growth yeah. and eternal family. Those are really potent narratives and messages and and beliefs and i had a really interesting experience when i dislodged those existential frames from my world it happened very quickly and for me it was it was this dual feeling of extreme displacement and fear and yeah like what like i i thought yeah i thought i had this whole plan that was sketched out literally with in a diagram and now i don't and then the other feeling that was actually a greater feeling, 70% of the feeling was thrill because it actually felt like instead of a two-dimensional plan of salvation with the bubbles that say you're going to mm -hmm. go here, which is how I always saw it and I knew mm -hmm. it intellectually, my body was washed over with a genuine sense of 3D, a real 3D sense of I don't know why I'm here and uh -huh. this world is all I have. And suddenly the trees and, and my place in the cosmos and all of that became so much more amazing and exciting and thrilling and kind of scary, but in a really exhilarating way. And and that has continued with like that's given me I've, I was thrust into this sense of not knowing. And now I've just been in this floating space and it, it's actually allowed me to cultivate an appreciation for this world because and my family like. Mm -hmm. I, I tell my parents, I tell everyone, like, I don't need a Jesus or a God to like be like, like, I have my sacred people and they're mm -hmm. here in my home. They, mm. They're the most sacred things I have. There's no one I have to pray to because this is it. This is the, this is, this took the place, what God is to, to mm -hmm. a lot of people. Like this family that I have is to me. 
and yeah. and it and that just it just it just gives you an awe and wonder because you're not always thinking of heaven. Well, I've only been out for five years and I've only lived in New York City for five months and I'm getting to that. And the thing that I've noticed with myself is the simple things are becoming way cooler. And it's just like every once in a while when I'm on a plane, it's just like, wait a minute, I'm a freaking mammal. (laughs) And once upon a time, we looked up in the sky and said, we want to do with those birds. Like we hijacked an entire other species technology and we do it better than them. And we take it for granted. Like all these things that we take for granted to me, it's just like, this is bananas. Like life itself is crazy. And it's replaced my certainty with a lot of curiosity and adventure. And so the unknown went from it, it can be scary, but it's also to your point, exhilarating. We're going to wrap with something that I call end on the deep end. We'll see what comes out. So just looking back. So how old are you now, by the way? Uh, 35. We're the same age. Okay, cool. I'm turning 36 on November 1st. So about a month. In your teenage years, looking back, I mean, you've lived a lot of life. What's something from your teenage years, even with all this that you're most proud of? I guess I feel like I'm most proud that I was, that I trusted my creative voice when I was a teenager, I, I wasn't good at school and I wasn't like exceptional at sports or anything. And and so I didn't really think I was, I had really much of a future doing anything with, with any kind of success. But one thing I gave myself as a teenager was the ability to be creative and to make music and to turn on the camera and shoot things and edit things. And they're all kind of throwaway things, but I honored that. I cultivated that. I respected that. And that came back to really pay me back and become a huge part of my identity later on. I'm really glad I, I listened to that. Still doing it now. Yeah. Somewhat subtly different question. In your 20s, what did you do that built the most self-respect? Like looking back at your 20s, what is something that you did? For me, it was, uh, I mean, it was right. It was the decision to leave for me. Like it was like choosing that I could go to hell. Uh, like that's what it was for me when I decided and I was like, I would could go to hell and I would, I'm choosing that if that's what it means, but I have to believe that if there's a God that he can feel my intention and I'm going to choose li- to listen to my own internal guiding system yeah. for the first time, people give different answers, but what, it's, yeah, what, what is something in your twenties that would you say built the most self-respect? I would say it's a it's a version of that. Leaving the church was one of several efforts I made in my 20s to listen to the real me. And for me, that wasn't just my tension and, and kind of dissonance with the church. It was also a personal reticence to emote and to, to have feelings and to like let those feelings out, to express those feelings. And towards the latter part of my 20s, I started to learn, I sort of have a fluency, and I'm still learning that, but learning the language of getting feelings from like deep down and actually voicing them and expressing them. Uh, either in words or in tears or whatever it is. And I'm really glad I did that. That I think that's one of the the best things you can give yourself. And as a as a male in our society, that's often not taken yeah. as an acceptable thing to do. And I'm raising two boys now and and I'm very, very sensitive to the fact that I need to train them to be very expressive early on because society will not. And I I learned it very late and I'm really glad I did. Last thing, reflecting on life now, what's your favorite thing about life that you're really grateful for or fascinated by or curious or interested in? Like, yeah, what's your, what's one of your favorite things, anything that comes to mind? I'm fascinated by if you're willing to look, there's an endless amount of beauty in basically everything. I was on a walk today in a, a forest trail near my house and I was looking at the leaves changing slightly. There's barely changing. And I was sort of pondering like the different pigments in these leaves and how they kind of know to start to set in because the weather is just slightly changing and that whole dynamic and like nature is obviously the a place where you can ponder this, but anything, human systems, looking at the motherboard of a computer, this microphone right here, like all of this is endless intricacy that that is worth observing and appreciating you know the airplane the you know whatever it is to me that has turned into my framework existential framework because i don't have a plan of salvation 
I have the ability to wonder and to appreciate and to be fascinated by the complexity and beauty in everything around me. And as I get older, that becomes more natural and easier and a, a clearer impulse for me to do naturally. But I'm just at the cusp of like really having that be like my normal operating mode. And and I kind of love that. What a beautiful thing to end on. Johnny, thank you so much. This was freaking awesome. It's great to chat. I really appreciate it. It was good to to open up on some of this stuff. I'm now, my interest is peaked on the great break off with the fundamentalists. So you'll have to say. If you need stuff. any fundamentalist or ex-fundamentalist in your, in your story or series or any things to point to, just documents like the 1886 episode. Yeah. The Journal of Discourses is something that's a major part of our thing, but there's all these, there's something called the Truth Magazine. Have you heard of the Truth Magazine? No. Dude. It's such a big part of my culture, and especially with your whole thing about the uh, monopoly on truth, there's yeah. something called the Truth Magazine that fundamentalists started right after the split off, and it is wow. like showing where the LDS church went off and why we're the right ones and stuff like that. So any of that stuff, totally happy to support you and the team any way I can. Johnny.Harris on Instagram, Johnny Harris on YouTube. Um, I'll also put in the show notes the the latest video on uh, on. Uh, just things that we've referenced here, the real story of the Mormon church. Anything else you're working on that we should mention? We started a new channel called Search Party, which is a geopolitics and global sports channel that's growing. And that's about it. I'm just going to keep making videos on the channel and exploring lots of different topics. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for what you do. And thanks yes, you for thanks coming for on Cultured. Me. All right. This was, take care. This was awesome. Really appreciate it, Kelvin.